0: The Old Pilot's Plane Tales RAF Form 414, Volume 20 I had just landed at Alice Springs, having only minutes ago, thanks to a small shift of my inertial reference system, flown my F-18 through Australia's one and only permanently active piece of prohibited airspace in the entire continent. Still unaware of the magnitude of my transgression, I parked the fighter on the apron and climbed out, stretching after a few hours in the small cockpit. A couple of guys in Ansett Airline pilot's uniform were wandering up, keen to look over Australia's newest and most advanced jet fighter. I gave them the sixpenny tour, discovering that the captain was ex-Australian Air Force and grinning when they asked me if I could beat up the airfield on my departure. They assured me that everyone would be keen to watch. I promised to do my best and got on with the Hornet's turnaround. While I waited for the refueler to finish, I watched a couple of heavily built men dressed uncomfortably formally in the heat stride across the concrete towards me, and these guys weren't smiling. Indeed. They looked decidedly hostile. My stomach turned over a little when they opened their wallets and flashed ID cards at me so quickly that I didn't really get a chance to read them, and asked, Are you the pilot of this aircraft? I was the only military pilot on the pan, so kind of assumed that the question was rhetorical and anyway It was quickly followed by another. And did you just fly over Pine Gap? My reply of what's Pine Gap didn't seem to calm the situation at all. Unbeknown to me, a Cold War US-Australian treaty, agreed late in 1966, had given rise to a secret satellite surveillance base known by one of its names as the Joint Defence Facility Pine Gap. The base consisted of a number of large dishes covered in protective white domes that made them look like massive golf balls. It appears that the dishes allowed the control of US spy satellites as they passed over that large portion of the globe, which is Australia's home. Uh, The location near Alice Springs was deliberately chosen for its distance from the coast to prevent unfriendly aerial or ship-mounted surveillance. Operations started in 1970 when some 400 American families moved to this remote part of the outback. And since the end of the Cold War, operations have shifted towards anti-terror, whilst the staff numbers have now more than doubled, and the collection of domes multiplied again and again. Of course, information is available now that, at the time, was extremely sensitive, but my declared ignorance of the facility did little to placate my interrogators. Exactly the opposite, in fact. By now I'd put two and two together. After all, I was a highly intelligent (coughs) fighter pilot, and my discovery of a bunch of very large satellite dishes hidden under domes in the remote, arid red centre of Australia, part of the Simpson Desert, gave me the clue that I was probably guilty as charged. I was pretty sure I had committed a transgression, the magnitude of which was yet to be revealed, but the safest form of action seemed to apologise, which I did profusely. I apologised for my navigational error, for being British, for having a funny pommy accent, for my ignorance of Pine Gap, although I thought that a bit counterintuitive, since I assumed ignorance of a secret intelligence-gathering unit would be a good thing, and tried to reassure them that I wouldn't be making that mistake again, since it clearly upset them so much. I thought I'd suitably abase myself when they spotted my camera with its telephoto lens sitting on my little pile of flying gear under the aircraft ladder I'd pulled it out of the cockpit to take a selfie at Alice, something I tried to do at every airfield I visited at least once. Any change of heart after my display of earnest regrets was quickly replaced by more grim looks and they stalked off as it turned out, to plan their revenge. I duly finished prepping the jet, handed my next flight plan over to air traffic whilst asking for permission for a low fly past as part of my departure, and climbed in for the long leg over to Pierce Air Force Base near Perth in Western Australia. I wound up the Hornet, waved to the ANSIC guys in their 727, and taxied out. The circuit was clear, so the tower gave me permission for a flight past across the field, and I gunned the aircraft down the runway and off. I eased round and a left two seventy, and let down to a hundred feet or so, and in full burner ripped across Alice Springs in what I hoped was a suitable demonstration of Australian air power before pulling up and heading off for the long leg southwest to Perth. I took the burners out pretty quickly, since I needed to hang on to the fuel. It was a long leg, and I settled into a normal climb. As I left Alice behind, I had a quiet moment of self-congratulation for talking myself out of trouble. After all, I was a loyal member of the Royal Air Force, with a very high security clearance, and now trusted to fly Australia's most advanced fighter jet. Little did I realise that any efforts I'd made in that direction had been rapidly wiped out after my flypast, which the security personnel from Pine Gap had taken to be the Air Force equivalent of me blowing them a raspberry whilst giving them the finger. As the miles ticked slowly by, I realised now that those long transits a taste of things to come when I would become a dyed-in-the-wool airline pilot, and they lacked coffee and toilet facilities, but I amused myself by shooting down every airliner I came across, at least in the virtual sense, and locking my radar onto the trucks and road trains that occupied the few remote roads that I crossed. "'wondering how their speed-trap radar detectors were reacting "'as I fired a steady stream of RF down at them. "'Eventually I let down towards our Pierce, "'and after breaking into their circuit, landing, "'I confirmed for them that I was the F-18 "'that had earlier departed from Alice Springs. "'I was directed towards a rather special parking spot.' the question had given me the hint that my earlier error hadn't been quite put to bed, and this was confirmed as I taxed it up to a large reception committee. I eyed them up, noting that they had got some wing commander out of the bar who turned out to be the officer commanding operations, a few military policemen and several civilians who looked like grumpier clones of the grumpy men from Pine Gap. I had barely slithered off the wing to reach terra firma when the wing commander bluntly informed me that my aircraft had been impounded and was going to be searched. I tried to explain that it wasn't really my aircraft, it belonged to OC-77 Squadron, or perhaps his boss at 81 Wing, but ultimately the Royal Australian Air Force, of which he was a senior member, but my explanation was cut short so with a policeman on either side and my arms full of my belongings, I was marched off to an interview room. The men in civvies were at no pains to identify themselves, and to this day I have no real idea from which government department they came, and in the case of the quiet ones that hovered around in the shadows, from which country. I had no reason to obfuscate, so explained how I ended up in my predicament several times before they started showing an interest in my photographic gear. They took the film from my camera, some exposed rolls and all my unexposed film, and then searched me and all my gear for any that I might have concealed. I was informed that my aircraft was receiving an equally thorough examination. I was only hoping that they could remember how to put it back together again as it was my ride home. It took a few hours, but at last I was released and allowed to go. My first call was to the British High Commission in Canberra, but on a Friday evening all I could do was leave a message with the duty officer. Likewise, my attempts to contact the squadron were fruitless, but more messages were left. A little later, in a hastily acquired hire car, I set off for Margaret River to join my father for the weekend there. After retiring from the airline industry, he and Carol, his wife, now owned a lovely restaurant there, which featured the fine wines of the area and had become famous for serving Nouvelle Cuisine, which Carol, a Paris-trained cordon bleu chef, prepared. I tried to enjoy their company, but I felt the repercussions of those few seconds over Pine Gap hanging over me like the Sword of Damocles. Monday morning, and since my boss was still in the Philippines, I spoke to the 77 Squadron XO, Jono, who just told me to get back to Willy, and then I chatted to the Air Attaché, who said that he would look into my transgression. The folk at Pierce seemed to have successfully reassembled my Hornet, so I took off, bound for Royal Australian Air Force Base Edinburgh, near Adelaide, about 1,300 miles east across the Great Australian Bight. The Bight, B-I-G-H-T, a word that describes an open bay, which in this case was a huge oceanic one, looked like some vast creature had taken a bite, B-I-T-E, out of the bottom of the continent. However, its shape was actually caused when the landmass of Antarctica broke away from what was to become Australia some 50 million years ago. The coastline is typified by an almost unbroken line of rugged cliffs around 200 feet 60 metres high, with some twice that height. The sea has a reputation for storms and rough waves, and it's considered to be something of a marine desert, although it has a high population of sharks and whales. Conditions inland are also hostile, as the Bight forms the southern border of the Nullarbor Desert the surface of which is made from the world's largest piece of limestone, 750 miles or 1,200 kilometres east to west. This inhospitable landscape gives rise to little plant life. Indeed, the word Nullarbor means no tree. But it is home to the air highway, which at over a 1,000 miles has enormous stretches of gun-barrel straight road. After refuelling amongst the P3 Orion's based there, I continued east across the width of New South Wales back to Willy and home. I sat down with the XO and recounted my tale, whilst he managed to stifle the odd snigger at my expense, but there was nothing much to do except wait to see what happened. I heard that there was some kind of inquiry going on, but I wasn't asked to take part. The aircraft's data recorder was milked of its long line of ones and zeros, and Jono spent many hours trying to piece it all together to establish my flight path. I got a few raised eyebrows from the execs when the parameters of my flypast of Alice were revealed, but no formal admonishment, and as the weeks passed, I began to wonder if it had all been forgotten about. Then... Three months later, I got a large brown envelope from the National Security Agency via the Air Force Police. Looking at the red classification stamps that had been put on it and then crossed out, the now declassified contents were apparently considered safe to return to me. I broke open the seal and outspilled a few dozen beautifully processed 8 by 10 glossy photos of my travels up through Mount Isa, Darwin, Uluru and Alice. As I admired them, I realised just how lucky I'd been that I hadn't given way to the impulse I had to capture a fleeting image of some strange golf balls in the desert. There were few things that happened on the base that I was excluded from, and not just Pine Gap. It turned out there was going to be a day of Oz eyes only briefings for the operational RAAF officers on the base, which meant that the exchange officers were all excluded and at a loose end. As well as myself, there were a number of other exchange officers at Willie. Ones from the U.S. Air Force, U.S. Navy, U.S. Marines, and the Canadian Air Force. Several of us lived on the same street, so we often got together after work, sitting on the curb drinking cold tinnies, whilst keeping an eye on the kids playing in the street. Lifelong friendships were formed. So when we heard that everyone was going to be otherwise occupied, Jack, Yusaf, Randy, U.S. Navy, and I managed to get hold of a jet each, and we set up a 1v1v1 mission. I always loved this kind of combat, as it was a kind of free-for-all. Everyone was the enemy. And what's more, we had the pride of our services to uphold. We duly devised some rules. We divided the airspace into a big triangle and drew a side each. Whichever side of the triangle was ours, that side was our safe area our regeneration zone, and death to any other player who crossed into it. The inside of the triangle was the play area where we could shoot at each other, but were also vulnerable to attack. If we got killed, we had to retreat beyond our sideline to come alive again. The ultimate goal being to kill both opponents and be the last man standing. If you couldn't do that, then it was whoever had the most kills. The briefing was a hoot, since there weren't any adults present, trash talk abounded, and egos were on full show. We flew into the play area and got together under the control of our fighter controllers, and the fight was on. Of course, for a while nothing happened, since nobody wanted to be the first to commit. We had all worked out that the ideal situation was to wait until the other two got engaged and then rush in and wipe them both out. It was hard keeping situational awareness, since we could only use our radars when heading towards our side of the triangle, and that meant we would eventually enter the play area and be vulnerable. However, patience is a virtue. We all made a few forays in and tried to trade missiles from a distance, but the sparrow needed a radar lock to guide, which meant as soon as you committed to fire... You lost situational awareness on the other guy. We traded missiles a few times, but as soon as the RWR squawked from the third player, we pumped back into our safe zones to regroup. Eventually, the US Air Force and the US Navy had at each other. I guess they had more long-term competitiveness between them, and I got my chance. I came out at low level and engaged the nearest on the beam. It was Randy and I got him with a winder kill whilst he was occupied evading a missile from Jack. The great thing was you could call a winder kill straight away. You didn't have to time the shot out like a sparrow. I was coming fast from below and blew straight up beyond him in full burner heading for the moon. I was hoping Jack wouldn't find me straight away since he needed to break lock and start searching and I was going up rapidly. With one eye on my RWR, I kept climbing, topping at around 40,000 feet. Jack was calling, come out, come out, wherever you are. Leveling off, short of speed, I rolled the scanner down and began to search the sky. Nothing, nothing, and then hit about 10 degrees down. I rolled the captain's bars over the contact and locked the radar. The symbology immediately came up, in range. i have got it. I squeezed the trigger and watched the seconds count down. Jack had dived away, but he was in the no-escape zone. Two, one, zero. You're dead, Jack. Knock it off, knock it off. Full of beans, I joined up with them and we headed home. I was like a dog with two tails as we walked back from the flight line. Randy was giving me sideways grins and Jack was playing the grumpy old Fighter Weapons School graduate. In the debrief, I was full of it until it came time to validate our kills. My video cassette went into the machine and there was the winder shot as clear as day. Fast forward to me on the perch looking down at Jack, all was good until the trigger press. Jack was well below and I needed to pitch down to center the firing dot and get a shoot cue or the missile seeker might not acquire the target. When it was obvious that I'd failed to achieve this last step and assure his demise, Jack's bellow of laughter filled the building. No kill, he shouted, and I led them to the bar with both my tails between my legs. Plane Tales is a featured segment of the Airline Pilot Guy show. You can find out all about that at AirlinePilotGuy.com. And if you're listening to this, you probably already know. Plane Tales is a standalone podcast, and we'd really appreciate your help with a decent review on Apple Podcasts or your podcatcher of choice. Many thanks for listening.